Welcome to the regular podcast from Editorial Intelligence, the media analysis and networking business. You can see all our broadcast interviews on our EITV channel on YouTube and editorialintelligence.com. Anyway, good morning, everyone. Uh, my name is Derek Wyatt, and um, I'm chairing this morning's session. I'm a small stakeholder or shareholder in Editorial Intelligence. Uh, we're over five years old, actually. It's hard to believe that we've done all that work since then. Uh, I'm best known probably for founding the Oxford Internet Institute at Oxford University ten years ago. Uh, but what it seems like another life, I was an MP for 13 years, and you may not believe it looking at my body, but I did once play for England at rugby too. We have a number of uh, sponsors to thank, Race Online 2012, uh, Detica, Channel 4, Edelman, Mumsnet, and the Philharmonia Orchestra. The whole event is on record, and there's a podcast available on editorialintelligence.com and commentconference.com. To keep the conversation live, uh, you can go to Twitter on the hashtag NetworkNation. Well, we have two uh, very stimulating guests to kick us off this morning. The first uh, on my left is, is Martha Lane Fox. Martha's our UK digital champion. She's done many things in her life already. Uh, she sits on the board at Marks and Spencers, at Channel 4, at My Deco. Of course, she's uh, known for uh, some work she did at um, Spectrum Consultancy, I think, was it? Uh, founding a small little network company, uh, which she sold for a few bob. Uh, she's uh, also in charge of our race online 2012, which, as you can see, we have 10 million people in the United Kingdom who aren't online. She's not responsible for all 10 million, but she'll probably say in conversation what she's actually trying to do for the Race Online project. David Rowan, to, to our right, is currently editor of Wired magazine UK. Wired has had, uh, I think, this is the third manifestation to make it work in the United Kingdom. I can remember it being jointly owned originally by The Guardian 10 or 12 years ago when, when, when you thought they would be natural partners. Uh, anyway, it's, it's pretty damn good. Uh, I have to say I'm a subscriber. David has written for most of our national newspapers. He writes, uh, I think he writes for the Daily Telegraph occasionally. Uh, he's appeared on television. Uh, he's uh, probably one of the most wired people, so it's appropriate, really, that, that he's the editor of Wired UK, and he's going to interview Martha. So will you give a warm welcome to Martha and David? Thank you, and I just want to stress that Martha's title includes champion. She was dragged out of her sickbed to get here, and that's an easy way of winning the audience's sympathy right up front, so I think we should give the champion a quick round of applause for making it. I'm actually just high on Sudafed and Sulcadine. That's the problem. Thank you. So there's going to be some stone responses. Great film. I think it included Julian Assange's defence case. I thought the internet would keep me out of trouble. <laughs> yeah. Lots to talk about now, but first of all, let's clarify what a digital champion does. Uh, well, the first thing is a digital champion has to pin down what they do, I think. I was originally asked in 2009 to, uh, and I quote directly, look at how to improve the life chances of the most disadvantaged using technology. Pretty big brief. Um, but I decided that uh, we had an uh, opportunity here right now in the UK to do something quite extraordinary and strive to have 
nearly the whole country engaged with the internet. And as I uh, said to you when we were talking before, I used the word engaged very carefully because I don't think that means just having access, I mean actually using. And so uh, we've kind of tried to move the agenda from just how to help particularly complex social problems with technology, which is extremely important, to how to make sure everybody, including the most vulnerable, including the most disadvantaged, including the old, all have the opportunity to learn and use the internet. And I believe that by doing that, hence the Network Nation, uh, we can create something quite extraordinary here in the UK, that we can create a country where everybody benefits, the individuals, but also us as UK kind of PLC, I guess. So what are the concrete benefits if everybody is online? Well, there's a ex-consultant, as um, Derek mentioned, one of the first things that we did was try to pin down what is the value of this to us as a country. Uh, we looked at two things. We looked at value to the individual and value to the UK. Um, the stats of benefits to the individual are well documented. Some of them were in that film, but briefly, if you're online, you save, even if you're in the most low-income household, you save £270 a year after the cost of the computer and the broadband access. That's by accessing products That's cheaper? That's by accessing products cheaper, everything from your energy supply through to insurance, uh, through just looking for deals and then shopping maybe offline to get them. So that's a big number, especially right now, clearly. Okay. Um, secondly, as you can see in the film, children who are online have a two-grade uh, improvement if they have access at home, and that's the difference between a pass and a fail very often, so extremely important. Um, if you're online, you are 25% more likely to be able to get a job, and when you're in that job, you'll earn 10% more. So again, at this time, very important to have that uh, bunch of skills in your, your armory, I guess. But some of the kind of slightly more intangible benefits are the ones that I also think are very interesting. People uh, have done research to show that your feelings of confidence go up by about 80% if you're online, and your feelings of isolation go down by 60%. So that's why we threw that stat in there, about 3.1 million people not seeing anybody in a week. I mean, that's a staggering number. And I think that you know, the benefits of being connected for those individuals not only help them, but do shake out some costs somewhere in the equation. So that's the kind of individual benefit. If you add all of that up and you look at the UK as a whole, one thing we did just as a very kind of quick and dirty was to say, well, those people who are offline currently are also the heaviest users of government services, partly because the offline are skewed towards the most disadvantaged to inherently are much bigger consumers of products from, say, DWP or, or other government offices. And by talking and interacting with those people, uh, the government could save a billion pounds a year if it moved one of those interactions from a paper or a face-to-face -face or a phone to an electronic one. So I'm not advocating stopping all face-to-face -face support, of course, or leaving anybody behind. But I think government has a very important role to play in this kind of false choice that's been set up to say, well, because you're offline, we're always going to send you a brochure. To me, that's a bit like saying now, well, because you're unable to read, we're not going to help you learn to read. And I think actually, back to everybody benefiting if everybody's online, it would be, it's an important thing now for government to help move that final bunch of people. There's some internet. quite powerful figures in the manifesto you produced in the summer. Um, that every contact we have with online, with government that's online can save, I think you said, between £3.30 and £12. And there's about mm -hmm. 1.8 billion contacts we have with the public services each year. So yeah. 
there's a central agenda to make this happen. Yeah, absolutely. And there's you know, a lot of um, interesting work going on at the minute. There's one organization called Participle. Maybe some people know them, maybe even be here. Um, they've done a lot of work looking at uh, what they call sort of chaotic families, but in the round. So if you look at all of the services that a particular family who are heavily reliant on government for many, many different types of products, a huge percentage of time that government in the whole is spending with those families is done by paper, by phone, <coughs> arranging appointments, doing all the things that could be done much more easily online to allow the proper quality time to be spent with the person counselling face-to-face. And I think that's the interesting thing, to how to move from taking all of just rubbish and crap away that you have to do to be able to spend the time and the, spend the investment, actually, in what people need. Is every bit of central government listening? Because, you know, <laughs> I've managed to renew my driving licence. You would think I was completely license, insane but... if I said yes. No, I mean, it's tough. It's really tough. I think that there are... So we've had some good wins. A couple of weeks ago, uh, Francis Maud uh, announced some recommendations that I had made around direct govern the way government does websites and stealing quite mercilessly from Google. Sorry, I know that there's instant death if you say that word in this building. But um, we've tried to embed this culture in central government of a default digital. So rather than assuming things are offline and there's a case to be built to do them online, flip it round. Assume things should be online first, design them for the 21st century, and then make the case if they need to be offline. And that seems to have some momentum behind it. Governments certainly have embedded that in uh, some of the things that they're doing now. So we, we really feel as though the opportunity is right at this moment. The macro climate all points to some of this stuff needing to change as well. So which department would you like to push a bit further first? Uh, well, I'm always, as they know, completely obsessed with the Department of Work and Pensions. Not something that I thought I would say in my working career, but uh, it's, it's fascinating, hard, complex, but unlocks the key to a lot of the kind of other people that we have met and that you see on that film, because they are the department that most predominantly work with the most socially excluded and therefore the most digitally excluded. And I think, you know, small things like providing the absolute best services online will encourage more people online. If you're looking for job seekers allowance, if you're on multiple types of benefits, it's still very hard to do that online. It doesn't encourage you. It doesn't say we as government are going to provide the kind of gold standard and help you learn how to use this stuff. So that's the department that uh, I'm most keen to see some work. So Martha, you're coming with your enthusiasm and your you know, 50 tweets a minute and your mm. community into this ingrained bureaucracy. Mm. Do you have any power? I don't think it's necessarily about power. I mean, that's a, I think it's about uh, building good cases and learning how to influence and making sure that you're consistent and clear and simple. So, you know, you have to earn that and you have to earn your credibility. I think the things that, and I can't claim credit for this alone, my amazing team who are scattered around the room have helped enormously, but obviously I was given no money to do this, so we launched the Race Online 2012 campaign. Uh, very simple, it's a B2B campaign, we're not trying to build a brand, it's just to encourage organisations that do know about how to get people to use technology and also do know about our 
target groups, the most vulnerable and most disadvantaged, to help us build that network nation. Uh, in eight months, we've got 900 partners. They've made commitments to get nearly another 2 million people online. Some big ones like Microsoft, BBC, BT, Talk, Talk, Sky, Donald's Comet, and then some very small ones like local libraries, small charities. And that, to me, is a huge part of the key to this because you can't just do it from government alone. And that, in turn, I think, puts some pressure on inside government as they can see some of the momentum building from the commercial and kind of charitable sector. So uh, I don't think it's all about, you know, sitting there and saying, I demand powers and I demand these things to be done. I think you have to earn that, and I think you have to build the case carefully. But uh, I think we're having some success. It must be a very useful strategic position not having a budget, because it means they yes. can't cut it. Well, it's, a, it's actually, you know, I, I would not be the best person to spend a big budget. You know, I'm not an expert in how to reach the people like the people you saw in our film. But there are other people who are. There are charities. There are product uh, people. So that's why I feel very strongly that we want to piggyback on what pe other people know and what experts are already doing. So you've got private sector supporters. <clears throat> But central government's pretty bankrupt at the moment. There's not that much cash around. And you've given, through your manifesto, some pretty bold targets. By the end of this parliament, everyone of working age should be online. No one should retire without web skills. Are we going to be able to achieve that with no money in government? Well, yes, because I think there is money. It's about moving it around to the right places. I think that, uh, again, it's not my role to do the, the business case and to make the you know, minutiae recommendations, but it is my role to keep championing and challenging and to keep putting the context around the fact that you know, the world has changed and it's not okay, I think, to not include the internet absolutely at the heart of how you design services. And as you started off, that will save government huge amounts of money, enormous over time. Yes, there may be an investment case that you have to build and the phasing and all of the things that we know from the commercial sector. But fundamentally, there's an opportunity right now to shift how government spends its enormous IT budgets and how it interacts with citizens to really not only save money, be more efficient, but design world-class services and help the people that are using them by being absolutely clear, consistent, simple and effective. Whenever I think of government and IT <coughs> in the same sentence, there's usually the word overspend and failure in there. I mean, mm -hmm. central government does not have a fantastic track record of organising any significant IT project, does it? No, and again, I think that this, my piece of this agenda is not about huge government IT projects. It's actually quite the opposite. It's about recognising that uh, the transactions that people do, whether that's first your first application for job seekers allowance or whether that's uh, your student loan application um, are far too complicated could still be best copy best practice that happens out there on the web could be much more open could be done very often by the private sector or the commercial uh, or other commercial partners and could be much 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 better for users and I think that that's not about big IT contracts at all, quite the opposite. It's about following what's happened already outside in the technology world, opening up APIs, becoming much simpler, becoming much more focused on the end user experience rather than being policy-led, being led by, actually, can I complete this transaction? Actually, does this provide what I want as a, as a citizen? Do people all know what APIs are? Sorry. They're very dull but very important. <laughs> They're not dull. <laughs> Shall we explain what APIs are? 
But I think it's just it rather you know, it's been a big motivation around opening up data in government, putting out everything that government is spending and and being very transparent and open. The next thing is to allow other people to connect into the deep data sets that government have to develop the services themselves. So I'll give you an example. Um, a woman told me that she'd spent an hour and a half in the job centre trying to work out whether or not she'd be better off if she went back into work. An hour and a half. And still at the end of it, she didn't have an answer about whether she would be better off. If you had opened up the API, you would be able to have Money Supermarket, for example, I haven't asked them, but this is an example, deliver that service and compare prices, something they do all of the time. So it just allows commercial sector to plug even deeper into the information that government is using to develop better services. Basically, government explaining and, it. and the agencies have tons of data, which is just available for use. Mm -hmm. And coders come up with clever ideas. There were some great examples of <coughs> Transport for London data. Yes. They released where the trains on the underground were in real time. <coughs> and a guy called Matthew Somerville created a live Google map so yeah. you could see where trains were. Yeah. It collapsed under the demand. But then there's National Rail that knows where every train is in real time that's blocked people from using its open data feeds because mm. it's trying to make money out of it. Isn't there a conflict there? Probably, but I think all of that is going to be shaken out, and it's not a reason not to keep pushing ahead and to suggest that it's a good idea. But I think what's interesting is that you know, the first wave is getting data out there. The second wave, I think, is really connecting much more deeply and developing actual services that the government maybe doesn't need to develop themselves anymore. So, Martha, you're a champion under this government. I think you were a czar <coughs> under the former government. No, I was a champion, actually. Were you a champion? I've always been a champion. It's ridiculous, isn't it? Has there been a change of tone... Um, of attitudes towards online services since the election? That's a good question. I think, you know, uh, I think that there has been a shift in uh, kind of, what's the right word? Um, not quite spirit, but I think sort of uh, <coughs> intention. So I think that the, the last government and the previous Prime Minister, who I have to say was extraordinarily supportive of what we're doing and really helped move this agenda from what was slightly niched right into the mainstream for which you know, the nine million will always be grateful and it's really important that, to, to note that, I think. But the difference, I think, with this government is that the emphasis has been very quickly on how to transform services very radically. You know, the, the spending cuts and the general macro climate and the uh, kind of newness that the government has made it feel as though a lot of things are happening all at the same time and that's been good because you can embed digital change in all of those different things. So I think maybe it's the difference between the end of a government and the beginning of a government as opposed to the actual government really. So David Cameron and his team say we want to make public on databases all government contracts over a certain amount yeah. and he's also <coughs> wanting to boost the UK tech industry, mm -hmm. talking about spending a couple of hundred million pounds boosting tech cities around the mm -hmm. place, including one after the Olympics are over in the Olympic Village. Mm -hmm. Do you see that as transforming <laughs> attitudes towards tech in the UK? I think, you know, I was just saying, we were watching the film, that one of the best moments of my entire year was, I think it was, probably, it was under a month into the coalition government, the, our champions, who you saw in the film, we took them to Downing Street and we had 10 of them all sitting around the cabinet office table with the Prime Minister there telling him their stories. And you could see a real light drawn in his mind that this was something that was so fundamental in helping people 
get through difficult situations in their lives. And those people who perhaps wouldn't have been in education, wouldn't have had a job, wouldn't have started a business, wouldn't have made any money, would have been much more reliant on uh, the state for help, were actually taking control of their lives. And I mention that because I think it is really relevant. I think it's great to have you know, big headquarters of global tech companies in London, but the key for me is about how you can encourage that spirit of enterprise that the internet enables for everybody, for small, medium enterprises, for people that perhaps, they're not going to build you know, global businesses, but they might start something from their front room that means that their lives get changed and moved. And that, I think, is what personally we could do as a UK. You know, I've got so many stories of people who've said, Without the internet, you know, I wouldn't have started my little business. I wouldn't have sold my music online. There's a woman called Warda who lives in Birmingham. She's a Somali refugee. She speaks 15 languages. She's got about 100 children from her s sitting room in, in, in Birmingham. Okay. <laughs> no, I, I mentioned that because I'm just in awe of her. She managed, she, she's beautiful and incredible and strong. And from her front room, she has started a translation business from the kind of 17 different languages that she speaks. And that is supporting her and her family. And you know, that is a really fantastic and inspirational story. So I care as much about that as I do about Twitter headquartering somewhere in the East End. I sense a real drive from you about seeing individuals transform their lives. Yeah, I think it is a question of social justice now. I really do. And I think, in a funny way, the narrower the gap becomes, the more important it becomes, because then you are really creating a deeply excluded, smaller group of people that... Uh, are, as we know from the facts, also the most economically disadvantaged. So that's why we strive for the high 90s, close to 100% penetration, like TV, as opposed to being happy with the kind of high 70s, 80s. How did you get into this? You were a poster girl of entrepreneurialism in the dot-com boom. Yeah. Serial entrepreneur, co-founding Lucky Voice, a karaoke business. You're doing lots of things. A Not business. a woman with much time on her hand. No, wait, on a couple of boards. Yep. How did how did you fall into this? I just got rung up and asked, and it seemed like an incredible opportunity. And I was, uh, you know, a bit unsure about whether to do it. But the first thing I did was I went to a training centre under the West Way, where people were learning to get online. And I kind of thought originally. Oh, yeah, the nine million, the older people, probably they're too old, and it just doesn't matter. But when I came out from that particular training session, I'd completely changed my mind. You know, for the older people that we met, it was the most transformational thing. You know, they felt connected. They felt like they weren't reliant on their families. And that, that got me, and I was bitten. So I rearranged my other bits so that I could focus more on this. So describe a typical Martha week. I mean, <laughs> Channel Four, four board, my deco... <laughs> There is no typical week. I think you just do what you need to do at the right time, and that's good and exciting, and uh, I feel very lucky that a lot of the things that I'm involved in, whether it's Channel 4 or M&S or what we're doing with Race Online or the Cabinet Office, actually, you know, 10 years ago, they'd have been out here in very, very, very different places, and now already they've come together so quickly. You know, Channel 4 syndicates out content on the web, and actually, so does MS now. You know, it has video clips. It syndicates that around about the place. Race Online is trying to involve partners to get commitments from them to do things to get people online. You would never have thought that MS would have been relevant in that even five years ago. But now it's absolutely relevant because it can broadcast why it's important to people at points of sale. It can help encourage the older community that the internet is interesting and exciting. So the world is kind of concertinaed together, as I see it. And 
actually, uh, far from being difficult to do all these things, I'm just cheating because they've all moved back together. So how often are you in Downing Street? Oh, you know, most mornings, no, not at all. <laughs> not at all. I, uh, I still get extremely overexcited as I walk up to number 10. It feels like a real privilege to be involved in any way, you know, regardless of the political uh, spectrum. I think that being asked to look at something is a real honour, so I really enjoy it every time I go. And if David Cameron said, Martha, come and have a seat around the cabinet table, we can't give you a budget, what would, what would be the stuff you do on your first day? Oh, I think that's very unlikely, and I would not be a very good Let's cabinet just member, say. because I'd be extremely naughty. Uh, <laughs> I, um, that's, that's not where I'm headed. I'm really, as you hope you can tell, passionate about not giving up on a huge number of people that haven't used technology, and even more than that, hastening that the adoption of technology for that group because I believe we can do something quite extraordinary here in the UK by 2012 and we it's not a pipe dream you know there are huge commitments being made by commercial organizations and how incredible if we can stand after the Olympics and say not only did we develop an amazing Olympics but we also had a digital legacy where our country <coughs> is properly networked and if you can yeah. assume that you can interact with customers online, that government can talk to you online, that you can talk to each other online, that can be a default position, and I think a huge amount of exciting things fall out of that. But the internet era is kind of moving towards the mobile internet era. This is the way that increasingly we're going to be accessing yeah. the web, the APIs, yeah. the apps in the future. Yeah. So it could be argued that you're fighting an old battle. Possibly, although I would argue that actually it's, not, it's less the web. The internet is still the enabler through all of this stuff. And uh, the test that we try and apply is a kind of around a basket of services. Can you do them on your mobile yet? Not quite. Can you write your CV on your mobile? Well, it's getting there, but not quite. Can you properly get good deals, you know, save those £270 even if you're in the lowest income family? Not quite. So I think mobile commerce is extremely exciting and I think you're absolutely right. The kind of device becomes less important. You know, television, that for me is actually a, a bigger deal than mobile perhaps for the communities that we're trying to reach when you can really do extremely uh, swish and quick uh, apps <coughs> delivered via IPTV. So there are lots of technology changes coming up, but I think for me, you know, we have an opportunity to strive, not just to wait for technology, but to be active in bringing more of our country online more quickly. But as more of these um, excluded consumers upgrade their mobile phones, and I think most of them probably do have mobile phones, well, many of them will be upgrading to phones that can convey the internet through apps. Mm. A lot of the apps are controlled by just a few outlets. So mm. Apple, for instance, mm. has an awful lot of say over how people access the internet. Are you worried at all that we're going back towards a series of privatised internets? Yeah, it's a really good question. I think, uh, just to, to check you for a moment, <coughs> not a huge amount of people in our particularly target most vulnerable groups have mobile phones that are smartphones. You know, Not pay, yet. Pay-as-you-go phones, and even that can be you know, a bit of a struggle. Lots of people with trying to reach don't have credit cards or bank accounts. So you know, I, I think you're right, but I still think that there are a group of people for whom the device might well not be a mobile, it might be a TV. And I think you're also absolutely right. You know, uh, We want to make sure that there is the widest approach to the widest number of services. 
Uh, and I don't think, I think Apple do an amazing job, but I don't want them to dominate. I think it's very important we have a, a broad range of products and services delivered by a broad range of different providers. So there are these fantastic private enterprises like Apple, like Facebook, which are now the way a lot of people are accessing the internet. In Facebook, there's half a billion users, a couple of hundred people using it through their mobile device. Yeah. I think, on average, people with a mobile device are spending 55 minutes a day through Facebook. So That's for amazing. many people, yeah. this is the internet. But again, it's private, it's unregulated. Mark Zuckerberg can do what he wants with your information. Do you think there's a role for the state to start regulating? I think that at the minute it's a, a benign dictatorship, right? So both Google and Facebook are <coughs> started by individuals for whom I have a huge amount of respect. I think that you know they're not based on something suspicious or malign, and that's that's really important. I think you get carried away with thinking, oh, there's something dubious going on. No, I think actually they're striving to create good products and services in a good way. I think that. Uh, Anything that's kind of obfuscated is a bit of an issue. And I, I think Brent has been more articulate, my old co-founder in this, than me around Google's algorithms and actually exploring what, what it is that gets you to the top of a Google search page and actually you're making much more obvious and transparent how their system works. And I think that's something that he's kind of called for much closer kind of transparency on. And I, I buy that kind of stuff. I think my fundamental position is we don't want government to get too involved, but I think you do want government to make sure that uh, everybody is able to access products and services. And you do want government to be a leader in that, to kind of create that playing field. It shouldn't be creating it for Facebook, it shouldn't be creating it for Twitter, it should be creating it for anyone in the UK who wants to develop and uh, achieve great apps and services. But then when Facebook becomes so dominant, it calls itself a utility. Mm. I still don't see where you see regulation coming in or not coming in. Well, I think you know, my default position is that government shouldn't necessarily be regulating these things, but I think there comes a point at which government can demand, as I said, some kind of transparency and accountability from businesses, and certainly your own private data, it should be clear what your own private data is being used for, I believe, should be able to find out where that's gone and what's happening to it. <coughs> um, I think that's true in government as much as it's true in Facebook. Uh, but at the minute, I think that, you know, but yeah, I would describe them as benign dictatorships. So in this wonderful internet world where we can start businesses through the internet and find opportunities, would it, we can also all be publishers and we can publish all sorts of documents. <coughs> WikiLeaks has been in the news lately for publishing all sorts of documents. Yes, it has. Is Julian Assange a hero? <laughs> A villain? I think neither, like most people, you know, he's become a caricature of a person. I remember I was judging an Amnesty Award maybe two, three years ago, and we gave it to WikiLeaks, a very, very tiny organization at that point, because they had allowed documents about a particularly brutal massacre in Nepal to be surfaced up onto the web. And that, you know, it was really an overwhelming story and an important story. I think, uh, I think a couple of things. I think. He's neither a hero nor a villain. I think that uh, he's become this sort of figure that is obviously receiving a huge amount of attention because of 
um, partly his nature and character, I guess, but also all the things that have been to have transpired recently. I think my personal view is that uh, the more good than harm has come from what WikiLeaks has done, and I think he has been portrayed as, you know, unfairly as uh, full of these uh, evil intentions, which I, I, I have no idea if they're there or not, but I think it's become way out of control. I think that um, if WikiLeaks means that our diplomatic services are a bit more polished and smarten up their act, then that's probably not a bad thing. I think that the context that is missing from all of this stuff is pretty important. So, you know, WikiLeaks can keep releasing information, but it's, it's kind of out of context and out of any kind of sense of how this fits into a bigger picture of uh, diplomacy or foreign relations. And I think that that's an issue. So that's a bit of a ramble. Sorry, the sea defense got the better of me. But I think, you know, I don't, I think that, you know, rape is a very serious charge, full stop. I have no idea about all of those things. And I haven't really come to a kind of conclusion in my own mind about them, but I don't think that uh, he is being treated in the way that uh, would happen to another normal citizen. I think it's become a caricature. I think fundamentally WikiLeaks has created more good debate than bad debate. There are politicians, particularly in the US, who are trying to get WikiLeaks removed from the internet, yeah. and pressuring private companies involved in hosting or raising funds for it. Yeah. Does this concern you? Yeah, of course. I think that uh, it's, I was walking somewhere at the weekend and there was a headline on the paper about, you know, cyber war. And then I walked past one of those digital advertising displays <coughs> and I suddenly thought, oh my God, I'm living in the future. It felt very strange. It was as though I was in Minority Report all of a sudden, you know, the, the advertising was changing every two seconds and glamorous ladies were dancing around and then some other advert for pop music. And then there was a, the, all the headlines on all the papers and I think that you know, this is a new a new time and it's complex and hard to work out kind of the right course through it but of course I believe that you know the commercial sector shouldn't be allowed to shut down a website that's just publishing you know we all publish stuff and as somebody said on the news yesterday I think you know what you're going to put all the people in prison that have ever taken information from government that wasn't you know it's that's not that's not the right way around to do it. Now when I have a few minutes for questions in five minutes, but can't not talk about your entrepreneurial career. Hmm. So, 12 years ago, I think I got my first bargain weekend in a country hotel through lastminute.com. Yes, and thank you very much. <laughs> did it work? <laughs> it was lovely. How did it feel to be, you know, one of the dominant UK personalities of that exciting boom time. It's really very strange because <coughs> we were working so incredibly hard. You know, I was 25, 26 when we started lastminute.com and you know, all my friends were charging around, falling over, going, getting drunk, having sex with inappropriate people. And I'd end up at a party at sort of two o'clock in the morning as everyone was leaving and everyone would know what I was doing. And I was, how on earth do you know personally who I am, let alone what we're up to? And it was because of this kind of outside media storm and the reality of the business was that we were just working hard to make the site not fall over, to make sure that when you booked a holiday, it actually existed. And that was a challenge, I tell you. So uh, it was extraordinary and amazing, amazing. So you were there till 2004? Yes, five, yeah, 2004, five. Do you miss it? No, I don't miss it. I 
had chosen to leave. I had always said to Brent that there was a period of time I wanted to get it to profitability. And I said, I'm always setting these crazy numbers. I said, I'll leave when we reach a billion dollars revenue. I never thought we would reach a billion dollars revenue for kind of 15 years. I guess nobody really thought about it. Um, but we did. <laughs> and I left. And uh, I was going off to do something else and felt like the right time. You know, I think it's important that founders realize that you know, they don't have the answer to the next phase of company's journey very often. I felt like I, my influence in the organization and what I was helping with was diminishing as opposed to increasing. So it was the right time to go, and I feel proud of what we did. And now you're also in the karaoke business. <laughs> yes, I am. I'm so high, I might sing. Anybody have a microphone? <laughs> <laughs> yes, this is a very simple idea. I love Japan, and it always struck me that uh, it wasn't really clear why there was a karaoke bar in every single corner in Japan, and there aren't any here. And that the experience of singing, what it releases, is something that's kind of common to human behavior. So we thought we'd start one. Um, Actually, what I discovered was that running things in the real world is quite hard and difficult. So we moved a lot of the business online. We've got an amazing singing at home service. Uh, we did some stuff with X Factor. We're doing some stuff for iPads and iPads and uh, iPhones and all the things you'd imagine. So it's it's been fun and surprising. And it's working. Yeah, it's working. It's a tough climate out there to be running little bars, but actually that's what I really love. And Nick, Thistleton, who runs the business, uh, is great and. I feel, again, very lucky that I have a world where I can go from the M&S boardroom and see this kind of macro climate. And M&S really does describe itself as sort of the bellwether of the retail industry. It can tell whether or not the UK confidence is up or down to then this tiny business with five bars, which is in a completely different space. And that feels like an enormous privilege. So, Brent, your co-founder at Last Minute, um, is now investing in the next generation through yeah. pro-founders. Yeah. If you were investing or starting another business now in this space, what would it be? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I guess I'm less uh, interested now in commercial ventures and more interested in kind of social enterprises or not-for-profits. I think that uh, if I was investing, I'd probably be looking at how we could move something like the Kiva model here to the UK, microfinancing, giving loans to people for their good ideas, some that might make money and some that might not make money, I guess. Uh, Anybody here use Kiva? Yeah. It's a website, kiva.org, <coughs> where anybody who wants to lend money can find people who want to borrow it to start a business. Yeah. And they've got, I think, a 1% default rate. Yes, that's very, very... Which credit card good. companies yeah. would love. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. They've had hundreds, now hundreds of millions of have been pledged to Kiva, so that's a smart model. I think that's interesting. It feels as though, you know, the sort of Venn diagram of <coughs> charitable industry, private enterprise, what technology is enabled is only really starting here in the UK. You know, I have a very small uh, foundation that I started to stop me spending all my money on shoes and. Uh, even in that... Very nice shoes, by the way. Thanks very much. They're so it's not entirely worth it. <laughs> um, the, uh, what I've seen there is that for charities to get money to do even their own technology infrastructure or their own websites is tough. You know, funders in this country still like to fund new projects and new ideas and very often just upgrading your own infrastructure or you know, thinking about how technology could help the organisation is hard. So it feels as though that's a big area for, for the next kind of few years in this country to really think about how to bring those things together. Uh, one more question from me, then I'd love to take some questions from the floor. Um, 
your packed CV with all your board seats and your philanthropic ventures. Sound like an arse, don't I? No, sounds <laughs> energetic and inspiring. <laughs> 2004 to 2006 in hospital, recuperating from accident. Mm. How are you doing now? I'm all right. I don't think you can break 28 bones and have a stroke and not feel it for the rest of your life. And that's kind of it, you know. And uh, that's, that is kind of it. I think I am an enormous, enormous supporter of denial. I think it's the most overrated <laughs> emotion. I think all of this stuff about talking stuff out, you know what, sometimes you just need to deny something happened and try and carry on. And does it affect you day to day? Because from the outside you seem phenomenally energetic and... Thank you. Thank you. Inspiring. Thank you. Could we take some questions? There should be a roving microphone. You want to say who you are? <coughs> the web is interactive, you know. There's a couple of questions down the back. Hi. Um, my name's Kate and I work for Oxfam. Um, Would you hi. mind standing up? Oh, no, not at all. Hello. And singing. <laughs> um, first of all, I'm a complete fan and I think that all of your arguments are really compelling. I think I'm slightly worried that um, you're going to be too successful um, in that obviously Oxfam work with really deprived communities, the people that you're targeting. And in a climate where libraries are being closed down and lots of people just physically, financially don't have the access to internet as much as it would help them, I think that there's a second issue that does involve funds and budgets being cut and things like that. And I worry that if you have too much success convincing government that all of their services should be online and things, that people who currently are being penalised for not being online aren't going to be able to bridge that gap and are going to continue to be increasingly marginalised. I think you're, that you've hit the nail on the head, but that's why, uh, rather than kind of avoiding that issue, we've tried to go straight on into it, because that's the absolute core of, I believe, how you can create the change. You know, I think that government for too long has said, these people are vulnerable, disadvantaged, they're marginalised, we have to interact with them in a particular way. And actually, that's a false choice for those people. It's, as I said, it's like, to me, not teaching people how to read now, the uh, exponential benefits for people who are the most disadvantaged of being online are, are too uh, clear and evident. So I think it's all about the kind of nuance in government and the language and the way that they're approaching the change. And last uh, couple of weeks ago, the announcements were around that government will have an expectation that people will start to do things online, but with the real understanding that no one would be left behind. So there will be assisted internet and support for people. And that the post office will be a huge part of how that might be delivered. As with the library network, you know, we're working very closely with the libraries. We've made a <coughs> massive commitment for us to get another half million people online and give them a real uh, focus and way of changing what they do for the next century. So you are absolutely right. It is something that we think about every single day. But I actually think that you've got to address that head on and make it part of the reason for change as opposed to um, of kind of avoiding it and I think leaving those people behind forever. Thank you. I hand over here, row three. The lady in the third row. <coughs> Sorry. <coughs> Uh, Kay Hutchison, Bell Media. Um, my question is about uh, Tech City. Obviously, a fantastic thing to announce. 
and it allows um, people to actually make that tangible somehow. It's a, it's a bit vague in terms of, of my thinking and what might come out of the Olympic Park legacy. I was wondering if you had any um, input or insight that you might have as to how that might be real in terms of joining together your Race Online 2012, Olympic legacy, local community, yep. um, because it's, it's obviously an opportunity. Yes. Well, I'm afraid I'm not that expert on the tech city. <laughs> there will be other people, I think, speaking today who are. Maybe Alex Balfour from the race, uh, from the Olympics, if he's here, can help a bit more on the, some of the plans for after the Olympics. But I think for us, the reason that we embedded Race Online very much in 2012 was that in each local community, regardless of a tech city, really it digitally enables that community. And, you know, I don't believe there is anywhere that won't benefit from having that ambition. And I'll give you an example. Uh, there's a community where Mill, who was the gardener on that film, lives called Noel West. It's in uh, Bristol. It's, I think, the third worst education ward in the country. Very excluded, very disadvantaged. And they uh, invited me there to see their media center. And you might think, what the hell? You know, why do they need a media center? You know, they need buses and they need a school, not a bloody media center. But it was incredible what that, that uh, tenacious social entrepreneur had done because it provided a way for people to get new skills. Mill had started her website. She'd used it as a channel to get the local area cleaned up because they were doing gardening projects now in gardens that before had been having old fridges stuffed in them. She had older people learning how to use the web. She had younger people training older people. She had people buying products and services from her website. So I think it was a really good example. And to me, that's what our Network Nation uh, vision is about. It's less about specific uh, clusters of tech expertise, which I do think are important, and you can see from the US have helped create and generate both economic <coughs> value and new businesses, but more about kind of how you make sure that whole country benefits from digital skills. I think we're in time, 10 o'clock, um, but you can continue the debate on the social networks, um, hashtag Network Nation. Martha now has to be whisked back to her hot water bottles. I'm going to stay in here. And her hot lemon. Um, so I'd just like to say a special thank you for enlightening us and for sharing. <coughs>